Okay, so our topic for today, are you ready for our topic for today? It is selling the family home, convenience or value? Value or convenience? Does it have to be one or the other? Can it be both? We're going to talk about that today. Um, we're going to have two panelists up here that are my colleagues and family members, if you will. And before we do that, though, let me just talk a little bit about why this topic is important, okay? So this picture might bring kind of some memories to people like oh, do you have a place in your house where your family has gathered for celebrations holidays birthdays anniversaries that it's just like you do it the same way every time it feels comfortable it feels natural right we call that our family home that's where people come to gather and then here's another picture right i think about this family and when i looked at this family i thought you know what they have their kids and their grandkids there at their home for holidays every year. They go out, they pick a Christmas tree, a fresh tree, they bring it in, they decorate it together, and they've probably done that for generations. That's what I think of when I think of that family. And then this picture, I said, you know what? There are, like, my daughter has her birthday parties for her kids at her mother-in-law's house a lot. And they have this big yard, and the kids all play outside, right? Do you have a house where your kids did all the birthday parties? And you kind of did the same thing each time, and it just, it became very comfortable. And for some of you, your home might be a container. It might, you might be the container of all the family memories. Right? You've got all the pictures, you've got all the furniture from all the aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas and moms and dads and brothers and sisters that have passed. And then some of you may even have what I consider like the ultimate. Like your house is the place everybody goes and you have a spot that you sit and you watch it all happen. Maybe you're a porch person or a back patio person or a pool person or a water person or a farm person. And that's where people went. I think about those rocking chairs to me just remind me of my great grandma's place in Gary, Oklahoma. The big white house on the curve where the family gathered on Sundays for the afternoon meal. And when I go back to Gary and I take somebody that's never been there, we drive up the boulevard and I go, well, that was my grandma's house and that was my great grandma's house. We all have a house, but some of you have a house that you're more connected to than others. And some of you may not even be connected to your house, but your kids might be, or your grandkids might be, or someone else in your family might be. And so what we're going to talk about today is what happens when you sell that house. And what are some things to think about that you may not have thought about before. And then we can talk about some of the technical, logistical kind of um, obstacles that go with that. So does that sound like a good plan? All right, let's bring up our panelists, Chris and Shannon. Come on up. Let's give them a ring. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but Chris and I will have been married, uh, been married maybe 25 years this year, right? I do remember. Yes. Yes. June, right? Yes. Six. June six. This is our 28th year working together. Can you believe that? Right? Some people say, oh, I can never work with my spouse. I'm like, I couldn't work without my spouse. That's true. Right? And then Shannon came along, and um, I kind of feel like uh, Shannon has kept our marriage sane um, because she takes on a lot of the jobs that I used to do, right, in the, in the business. And so now Chris gets to argue with her instead of me. It's awesome. 
well, and occasionally I get the call, Shannon, I'm going to kill him. I'll say, okay, not a problem. I can help you bury him. And then it's like, well, no, hold on. We need him for certain things. Um, and it's like, okay, never mind. So it's a process. It is, yeah, and I can't believe really lucky I'm still there. I, she said that in a recording. I, I really am not sure if she said that about the recording, but that's okay. I'll have to think about that one yeah. next time. Uh, Shannon has been with us now for, gosh, what, four years? Yep. And uh, when she came along to join Buckley Realty Group, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of a control freak. Y'all have noticed that, right? And it's hard to find somebody that's as good at something as you are when you build something. Can we all agree on that when you bring somebody on? And I thought, oh my gosh. And when I brought Shannon, I thought, okay, I've met my match. And now she's better than I am at most things. And so uh, it's a great, it's a match made in heaven. And one of the things that I appreciate about these two is that uh, this is more than real estate for all of us. You know that. And when you're selling a family home, um, it's a lot different than when you're just selling a house that, you know, you're, you've lived in a couple years, you're moving on or whatever. And so there's a lot of emotional stuff that goes into that. So I'm going to ask these guys some questions today. And uh, we're going we're gonna to talk through a few questions I have. And then those of you who are new, we'll open it up for questions at the end for you to ask. And uh, you're welcome to ask anything. There's nothing off limits here at all. And if I can't answer it or they can't answer it, we'll find somebody who can answer it. You also have a handout at your table. Uh, we're not following that handout specifically, but there's a place for you to take notes on the back. And then there's also an evaluation form there at your table. If you have a question that you don't want to ask out loud in front of the group, you can write it on there and we'll be glad to call you after today's event. All right, you guys ready? Let's go. Ready. Okay. So when most people think of selling a house that they were raised in or that has been their family home for a long time, what are some of the obstacles that they tend to encounter? Let's name maybe whatever those are. What do you guys think? Well, if you've got someone that's been in a house or raised in a house, I mean, I'll go back to specifically Dean. Okay. And uh, he was raised in the house since he was four. He's now 60. And the house after his mother passed was vacant for more than two years. Um, and so just getting through the stuff, once he finally got through the stuff, even pricing the house to the house to the point where it'll actually sell, number one, number two, is just his connection to it is so much more valuable to him than it is to the market. And that's always the hard part is trying to transition from self-value of what you put on the home or even the stuff inside of it and getting through that emotional trans transition from Yes, I need to sell. It's not. It's not serving anybody sitting there, not being loved and cared for. But and, I'm not ready. But I'm not ready yeah. emotionally to do it. Okay, so you said two things. I want to clarify. When you first said you said it was sitting there vacant for two years, what you mean is nobody was living in it. It wasn't empty. It wasn't empty. Correct. It was a storage. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it was maybe empty the last six months, maybe something like that. But yeah, it took a year and a half to probably to get it empty. Okay. And then the second thing you said, I just want to clarify, is um, that the value of the house itself was, he felt like it would had, it was should be priced more than what you guys thought, or is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. It, it had an emotional value that he put a dollar amount on that was higher than what the market would have put the dollar amount of that house on. Well, and we had that conversation with lots of sellers, not specifically the emotional connection, but a lot of times it is the emotional connection. Is that at that price, Mr. Seller, 
you are the buyer for your own house. There's nobody else out there at that. So it's a matter of working through, being able to release the fact that yes, this is the fam family home, this is what you were raised in. Uh, we were talking about this last night, my mother was over for dinner, and she asked me the same question, because she said, what's the topic for today? And I told her, and she goes, well, what do you think? I said, well, when we sell the house at some point, yeah, it's gonna be hard to sell, because Why? it is the house that I, it's the only house I know growing up. They bought it two years before I was born, so, um, We'll talk about that later, how long that is. And um, so it's, it's the only growing up house I know. So it will be hard to sell, but I think I've done this long enough to know that it's it's a reality. Well, it's because you're in this business. Right, it's a reality. It's yeah. it's If I hadn't been in the business, it would be much harder, I would say. And I wouldn't have said that until February. Yeah, okay. Can you talk without your hands at all? Not usually. Okay, that's just check. All right. <laughs> You guys notice it too? Okay. That's okay. I'm just asking. I have been surprised at how much the emotional aspect of selling a family home will stalemate the rest of the process. What? We'll talk about that. What do you mean, say stalemate? The emotions are so strong about selling or not selling, uh, meaning that the the mentally and Analytically, you know that you need to sell your house. Emotionally, you do not want to sell your house. And so what happens then, the next step is thinking about all the stuff. So then they begin putting all of the tasks in front of them saying, well, there's too much stuff I can't sell. I can't deal with this. And not knowing where to start. So the emotions guide the problem solving, the same client that I have that could probably build a fort in their backyard with toothpicks that could be on HGTV, cannot figure out how to deal with the stuff in their house because it's then an emotional blockage rather than an analytical blockage or a, um, obstacle. So beyond the emotional, um, what about people who uh, maybe have a, a family member's house that they're trying to deal with but they don't live here locally? How how is that for them? What, how can that, can that be an obstacle as well? Yes, and I can tell you the biggest obstacle for that is um, proximity and um, knowing who to trust. So they may have already been here, gone through the house, picked out what they wanted, and then they're still looking at this house. So they've got a little emotion going back, but they are dealing with that because they have their normalcy in their home in New York or California or, you know, Kansas, wherever that might be. And then they're looking at, but who do I call to do the next step? Because I'm not driving back and forth and trying to figure out how to do this on the one weekend a quarter. So once they find a partner or a vendor or a resource, life becomes much simpler for them. And you can absolutely hear the relief in their voice when you talk to them on the phone and say, this is what's happening. And they go, oh, this was so much simpler than I ever thought it could be because they have a team that's on the ground here in Oklahoma or wherever that's taking care of it for them and they're living their lives in their state and then being able to know and get recaps and reports of what's going on, it makes it simpler. They want it to happen, but they just don't know where to start. Well, and they're usually already emotionally detached from the situation. They're, they're looking for resources to get a project done. Yeah. And that's something that we can bring to it. Yeah, so that's why we started doing what we do, uh, frankly. But, yeah, 
And so, so part of it is emotional, part of it is logistics, um, part of it is the overwhelm I heard you say earlier. And then for some people, the question is, um, could we get more money out of this house? Before we go there, there's one more thing is that people have, a, they, they have a, a feeling of responsibility to what's in it and wanting to make sure that what's in it has been gone through thoroughly, that they're not missing anything that needs to go to the family or it needs to be shredded or they, they, they have a responsibility. They feel that they need to actually touch everything in there to know that. And that's the other thing that's really, really complicated to overcome with people is because they have this enormous chore and they really don't know how to go through the chore, number one, or number two, the stuff may have been sitting there 10, 15, 20 years in a storage situation already. And the reality is we know if it's been there that long logistically, there's probably no value that, that an estate sale can't find better than you. Yeah. And, and you said that earlier, if they've already gone through the house, traditionally they've worked through that if they have the ability to actually go through the house. There's some um, families that aren't able to come back and that's people who get really worried about what's in the house because they've not had the opportunity to come back and go through it as the estate, so it varies. You know, I have, uh, we have a, a friend now that has a house next door to her actually. Um, her parents passed and the house is sitting next door to her and it is full of stuff, full of stuff. And it's been, it's, we're going on three years now. Five. Oh, five? five Is it five years? Yeah. And I just, I'm blown away at when I say, hey, how are things going? Oh, well, we just haven't been able to get to it. And part of it is the sibling issue. So there are three siblings, the one sibling that lives next door, and then two other siblings, and um, coordinating that. So you have issues where the siblings can't seem to get it together. Yes. <laughs> well, I have it in my own house, too, so I understand what that looks like. So you usually have, you, there's lots of family dynamics. Think about it. We all have lots of family dynamics. You have someone who's the kind of take charge person who doesn't ask questions. They're just going to do it all. Then you who have, is that in your family? Oh, I don't know. I haven't identified that person yet. Uh, <laughs> then you have the person who's very emotional and very sentimental, and they want to touch everything in the house. Then you have one who really doesn't care. They're probably grieving quietly and they just want everyone to be happy. So they'll agree to whichever person's kind of in front of them. And then you have everything in between. So often it's a matter of bringing them together. And the nice part of the technology is that you can do that if they're in multiple states and different locations. Um, we've had more Skype phone calls. I have been, I've gone through closets with um, one sister in Colorado, one in Texas, and I'm in Oklahoma City and we're Skyping and I'm showing them pictures through a closet. And by the end of the conversation, I feel like I'm the third sister. And they then are saying, we have plenty of that picture. It's okay to let it go. And then, but it's a process. They have to think it through because in the beginning, we were gonna be packing all of that closet up to send them every picture in that closet. But after you go through two or three boxes and they realize it's all the same picture, um, then they're more likely to think about letting that go. Now, you mentioned the three types of siblings and you left one out. Okay, which one? Greed. Go ahead, Chris. Oh. Greed. Okay, the, well, it's the money. It's, it's, it's someone saying it's worth more than that. It's, that's the other sibling that's always fighting for every dollar that they think it might be worth. 
And well, so maybe we left two out then because I didn't think about that one. The one I was thinking about was the pain in the rear one. Um, the one that doesn't agree That's usually the one I mentioned. Well, okay. sometimes it's about money, but sometimes um, we have people who move their grandkid in because, well, they lost their job and they got divorced and they're broke. And so that one is sometimes impeding the process because they're, I'm going to call it freeloading. <laughs> For lack of a better word. Well, you've got the family dynamics of someone is now occupying the property. It's no longer vacant. It's being occupied. So they've kind of filled that niche where it's, it's being taken care of. There's somebody there. But the fact is, is the person who's there is just existing and really not taking care of anything. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword. So what happens to the value of the house while that's happening? It, it goes down. It, it's not being taken care of. Anytime you don't take care of, it, take care of your home, the value <laughs> will plateau and then start to decrease because of just lack of care. And we see that happen with families. Well, and also, it also comes back to family dynamics that if you have a person in the house who in this group is going to be the person who stands up and says, we love you, but get out. And that's a really hard conversation to have. One, I know that would be me too, but it's still, that's, you don't always, when you can call us and we can help you have that conversation, I guess, but it's not easy is what I'm saying. And that sometimes takes some time to get to yeah. as you're going through it. Yeah, so family dynamics is probably, it's the hardest thing, right? Yeah. Well, and that's even, that's even when you're looking at making a move and you're saying I'm voluntarily moving to something smaller or a community or that and then you tell your kids this and now the kids are going but, but, but the house the stuff you're you have been saving all of their souvenirs now for you know 60 years and now they don't know what to do with that number one number two because they don't want to take it to their house your house is a perfect place to keep it and so now they've got to figure out how to deal with that or let go of that and that's really another another challenge that we run into. Okay, so I had another thought, a uh, question for you. What happens when someone is still emotionally connected? And there were a few things that, that you guys talked about. One, um, pricing it. When they're emotionally connected, they sometimes price it too high. Okay, and then what about if they're emotionally connected, how do things like negotiating repairs usually work? If, if they get the inspection, you've got a contract, and the person wants some repairs made, how does that go, Shannon? Okay, so client, traditionally, when my clients get what we call the TRR, that's the list of repairs, they think it's a scorecard or a report card, and they take it very personally. They'll say, I promise you, that sink does not leak. I have lived there for 40 years, it has never leaked, I know it. Or the inspector tried to turn on your fireplace, and you know that you have to use your left hand, tilt to the right, and hope that the moon is full, and that fireplace turns on just fine. Um, and so, that, but that inspector didn't know that. So sometimes there is discussion about repairs because that worked to your standard and it may not work to another person's standard. So that sometimes is just a d discussion on um, function and how it's supposed to function and how you've allowed it to function or you've gotten used to it functioning is, is a better term right. because I find that in my house now right. too. I mean three burners on the stove work just fine. Right. I don't really understand why that fourth one has I to work. I've never used the fourth one. You can use all three of them and that, that, that fourth one was just extra. Um, it was just a suggestion. Right. Yeah. Well and some of the, the, the TRR stuff obviously the stuff we find entertaining is we need this shower fixed because of this this and this 
and you walk into the room and well, it's not a shower. <laughs> so that happens too. So I mean, it's a matter of what they're requesting we need to make sure is actually accurate. And sometimes you have the, yes, it turns on because you didn't know how to turn it on or it doesn't exist because it was just an error. So those are all things that you would have to clean up during the And sometimes people will say, well, I can't sell my house because I have red shag carpet and I don't want to change the carpet. Um, or that I have lots of wallpaper in my house and I'm not taking down that wallpaper. Well, that's okay too because part of this process is that you look at the value it is with the wallpaper on the wall. Those are cosmetic things and so a lot of it is talking about what works and what doesn't work to its meant function. Wallpaper is up there and as long as it's not peeling and it's okay, then you price the house accordingly and somebody can make it their own. So. Having our houses look like it looks like on HGTV is not realistic and not necessarily something that needs to happen. There, there are very few neighborhoods in Oklahoma City in which you could spend the money to make it look like HGTV and get a return. Okay, so you guys moved on to value versus convenience, right? So let me get the audience caught up. Okay, so value versus convenience. So reason I wanted to bring up emotion first is because emotions will dictate how these next decisions are made, right? Um, and I'm not just talking about the homeowner's emotions, I'm talking about the emotions of uh, the family members even uh, that may be involved in the decision making, whether, you're, whether you left the house to somebody or whether or not they're involved while you're still working on it. So let's talk about that in terms of the question we get from a lot of people is, should I make updates to my house in order to get more out of it? And they've lived in this house 40, 50, 60 years, like, like your parents. Well, and Let's, let's yeah. go back to Dean, because okay. I mean, since we've already brought him up. When we were looking at his mother's house and looking at things saying, okay, so if you really want to maximize and get that price, you're going to have to do X, Y, and Z. And when we walk through the house, what we run into a lot of the times is we're walking through the house looking at things to be done, and we go, so if you do this, then that flows into this, that flows into this, and this, and this, and we end up going, so where does it stop? Where can we, where can we make a legitimate stop and still look right and get you to return on what you're putting money into? Okay, so let me show a picture. I have a picture. I know you guys can't okay. see it. It's a, it's a before and after picture of a kitchen, okay? Um, and so if somebody made their kitchen look like that, but the rest of the house still looked like the original, would that return on investment be there? It, it would get them credit, but you know, you're looking at a, probably a $25,000 remodel and you might get the 25,000 back. And I'm gonna say might because you might not. And so you end up spending another two to three months doing that remodel, stress, dealing with it, spending the money out of pocket, pulling it all out. And then you look at it and go, but you didn't get it all back for me. I said, you know, your neighborhood, your minimum is, let's, let's say the minimum sales price is 220, the maximum sales price in your neighborhood is 270, and that's just not enough money, even- Even fixed up. Even fixed up, you just, you're not gonna quite hit that number because of your size. I mean, there's lots of the things we look at, but that's what we're looking at when we're evaluating value versus convenience. Well, I'm gonna go back to your emotion for just a second because people will sometimes get emotional, not just about their house, but about their neighborhood. And so they will think about, 
well, I need, I, I have to sell my house for this amount so that my neighbor's value will not go down. And so it's like, well, that's good, but you putting in $10,000 in your house to get a $5,000 return for your neighbors is a really nice gift and probably one that they may not return at any point. So there, you cannot control once you sell your house who moves in and who moves in and may sell it the next two weeks after that because of life. Um, we just had a house that sold, beautiful home. The family that was moving in was a lovely family. They were so excited. Uh, my sellers were so excited that this was not gonna be a rent house. And within a month, the house is now back up on the market and we're not sure why. Um, they did not be, ever move into the house and it, they are losing money on selling it. So something in that buyer's life changed and probably an emergency, I don't know what it is, but something that changed that now somebody else is gonna buy it, but my original seller now no longer has control. They did what was best for them and they made good decisions based on their circumstance, but after that you don't get to choose anymore. And that was a, that's sometimes very hard for um, people. A long time homeowner. A long time sure. homeowner. Because yeah. you know all your neighbors, they will tell me about all their neighbors. Right. Yeah, and sometimes your neighbors are not your friend, let me just say. Uh, so I, I, this wasn't a question, Shannon, but I think it's important to point this out. So when you are a longtime homeowner and you've, you've been in a neighborhood, you know all the people and, and all that, um, sometimes neighbors want to be helpful um, and aren't always helpful. Maybe tell that story about the roof issue, the guy that came over next door and started telling the, the buyers all about the issue. Um, She tries to forget about these so things. The, I know I block them out. Yeah, so the, the, the neighbor, uh, neighbor was overly friendly with the buyer. Before the house was. Be, before the house, well, actually, as the house was kind of going under contract and they were looking at it. And um, we, we, we wait for inspections on roofs and things like that. If we know the roof's probably bad, we'll get an inspector out beforehand and start dealing with, start dealing with insurance companies. Um, in this case, we kind of found out afterwards that yes, the roof's bad, so we were dealing with it with insurance and getting it all taken care of for the client. Um, but the roof, the neighbor next door recommended a. The neighbor next door was a roofer, and he then came over and took over the process with our seller because they were longtime neighbors, and ended up costing her more money in the roof that he put on versus the vendor that we provided because he was a trusted family friend. So again, that was her choice and her decision, but know that in they other, are still doing a business yeah. with their process. In, in other words, tell your neighbors to stay out of it. I'm just gonna be honest. I mean, this is the truth series because here's the deal. They'll come over and they'll be friendly with the neighbor, but they'll tell them your whole life history, including every repair you've ever made, every flood you had in your house, every garage that you've well, had. And they, and they think they're being helpful they generally. They're being, they're being helpful, friendly yeah. and it's just they're trying to bond with hopefully their new neighbor and all of those things. And it's at the same point, it's like, well, it'd really be better just to not be there. Yeah. Tell them to stay out of it. <laughs> It's why often we will do open houses just for the neighbors. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that neighbors can talk to each other and not all the new buyers. Right. Um, okay, so there's some other things that contribute to overwhelm for long-time homeowners. Um, and you talked a little bit about this stuff. And so if someone's selling a long-time home or a family home, um, 
what are some of the things that um, are the moving parts that you said earlier they don't know who to call on so these and this is not a commercial i'm just telling you if you have a family friend anywhere in the country this is going to be a, a problem for them so what are the things that they need to line up and let go of that they often don't know that they can let go of well i can tell you one of the things people try to tackle now especially younger the younger generations is um estate um Estate, estate no estate planning oh, estate like planning. they think they can do a probate on their own or a trust on their own and then when the person passes away you find out that not all the documents were filed correctly um, deeds weren't filed or um, something wasn't completed as it should have been and now something has to go through probate when the family thought it was in a trust so I can tell you that um, attorneys and uh, estate attorneys are incredibly valuable um, to families because if they have someone who they trust who knows the real process, um, that that will save lots of headaches and make it a smoother transition rather than someone who tried to save the money and look it up online and do it themselves. Well, keep in mind, when you're looking for attorneys, you're, you're looking for attorney that specializes in what you're doing. So in this case, we're talking about estate planning. You're not looking for a general attorney or an attorney that does you know, family law or domestic or, you know, criminal. You, you oil know, and you, gas. You, you, oil and gas, yeah. <laughs> a good it's, land man. A good land man does not help you in this situation. You, you really help. need to find someone who actually does estate planning, like Jennifer Wright is one of our education partners. That's what she does. That's what she knows. And we see um, probably once a year a, a trust that's not done well. Um, we're obviously not attorneys, but this is something we play with every day. And then I go back and look at who drew the trust up and look at who they are and what they do. And it's like, oh, this is kind of a secondary project for them. They didn't really cover all the bases. So finding a trusted resource is really important. Because what happens to the house while you're dealing with all that legal back and forth and probate possibly and all that? It sits. But it sits and it's still costing you money. So it's still costing the estate or a family member someone money because you're still paying taxes. Hopefully you are still paying insurance, i.e. the tornadoes and hail and everything else that we have in Oklahoma. And then you are probably paying utilities and there's just expenses and mowing the yard. Taxes. Taxes. So if you think about it, if you've got utilities on at the house, if you've got taxes and you've got uh, insurance on a house, it's costing you seven to nine hundred dollars a month storage unit fees because that's what it is and understand after a few months of a vacant house insurance starts to say hey it's vacant we don't cover it like owner occupancy we cover it like renter which means you now no longer have full coverage on your roof so and that's just after a few months that's that's the first thing that kicks in if you get into longevity issues you also get into tax issues so if you move into a community we sold someone who moved into a community that their house is like five or six years after they moved into the community well one of the questions that are asked when you close is have you lived in the house two of the last five years and this is an important question because if you answer no to that then what you're paid for the house 50 years ago at twenty thousand dollars and we just now sold it for three hundred thousand or even two hundred fifty thousand dollars there's a capital gains there that you're responsible for because you didn't live in it two of the last five years. So understand, the longer the house sits vacant, the more potential tax consequences that come to you or what comes to the heir that picks up the house later because 
when you pass, that's the new value of the house. And if they wait five years to sell it, then they're paying the step-up basis between the two. So holding onto the house only costs you more money, period. Now, if you're ready to spend it, that's fine, but it only costs you more money. Okay, so I'm going to talk about one more topic and then we'll, we'll open it up for questions if you're ready to do that. Sure. So one of the questions that I had for y'all was, you know, selling a house as is versus doing things to increase the value, which we kind of talked about the kitchen and that kind of thing. But I had a few specifics. So does it make a difference if a house has a mortgage or it's paid off, whether or not somebody should do things to it to, you know, increase the value? My answer would be no. It would be, a, it's a matter of the house. The only, right now, the situation traditionally is not that you're more, you, people are not upside down on houses right now, overall. It's not that it doesn't happen, but because of the last two years, houses have increased in value to a point that selling your house and having a mortgage as long as it pays it off. So there'd be the rare case that had someone having a mortgage that I would say you needed to do something to your house that would be the exception, not the rule. But let's say someone passes away, leaves their house to their heirs, and the house has a mortgage on it. And the family's trying to decide, should we sell it like it is and go ahead and pay the mortgage off, or should we remodel it? About how long would it take to remodel a house like that one that we looked at with the kitchen like that? Um, how long would that house? Well, if you're looking at just the kitchen. No, I'm talking about the house, because if the house is the whole house going to be remodeled to do. You know, when I do significant remodels in houses, I, I plan on at least 90 days. And depending on the significance, I mean, I did one that, that I basically said, this is a six month project. We've got it done in four and a half. But I, I would really plan on six months to do it. And you were over there every day for I, that entire time. Yeah, I understand I didn't do much of the work. It was all hired out. But, 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 you, you, but you have to yeah. oversee it on a daily basis, which is, it was a, it was a team effort between the client and I to do it. So, but there were several things involved there. You know, he had an insurance change or she had an insurance change because it was vacant for that period of time. You also have got to maintain the mortgage and have the money to do it. That remodel was $92,000. So they had to secure the funds to do it, but it happened to be in a neighborhood in which they made pushing $50,000 on the swing. So it was, it was valuable to do that. That's the exception. That is really, really the exception. Most neighborhoods, um, you do that, you spend that money on that remodel, and you go, did I get it all back? And the answer usually is no. So I remember that one vividly because this was a, this was not a family doing it, it was the personal representative. And he felt a certain uh, obligation, a certain, I mean, he had a responsibility to the estate to maximize the return on investment, right? And he basically came to us and said, would it make sense to remodel this house and and then sell it that way and chris you know crunched the numbers and said you know you could yield a, an increase in value on this particular house yes and um and it was a matter of i think if that would have been a family member and they you know rather than a personal representative that might have been different i would bet if it were a family member in that situation it would have been liquidated as it was yeah. It was pretty, pretty overwhelming. Um, the, the personal representative in that situation, and, and this person had moved to a community. They, they hadn't passed, so it wasn't necessarily an estate. He was looking at how do I, how do I give her the most amount of money for retirement and, and living where she was. 
So he was really doing a good job of that. And the aspects of this, this remodel was, was extensive. And I think most family members would have walked in, looked at it, walked out and said, I don't want to go back in there. I don't need anything that's in there. I'm done. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the other one I had, Shannon, was uh, is there a financial uh, advantage to people? Oh, we did talk about that. Repairs or cosmetic updates. So, so, so sometimes you talk about the difference between repairs and cosmetic updates. So is there a financial advantage to make repairs to things? We're not talking about carpet and wallpaper, but air conditioners, roofs, that kind of thing. Um, general maintenance, yes. There's always an advantage and a cost return on keeping things well kept. Do you need to put in a new air conditioner if yours works? No. Um, you want it to be well maintained and functioning. So not old. Old does not have to be replaced as long as it is functioning as it's meant to function. We, we talked about as is, I just want to say one thing real quick about as is if I can, is um, people, they, um, clients will often start out with telling us, well, I want to sell it as is because I want to make no repairs. Well, when I ask, so what kind of repairs do you think you need to make what's broken your house? Well, nothing's broken in my house, but I'm not replacing the carpet. I'm not putting, I'm not getting rid of the, uh, oh, sorry. of the wallpaper. And they think all of that is part of the as is. As is means that something's not functioning, not cosmetic. So that's the biggest right. distinction there. And then the other piece of that is when you tell a buyer that you're selling something as is, their first question to me as a realtor is what's wrong with it? What's broke? Because if you are selling, saying something is as is, that implies that, you're, that you know something you don't want to fix. And if you know that everything in your house functions as it's intended, except maybe the leak that's underneath the bathtub that you did not know about, which is not a hard fix, then don't tell people it's as is. Because you're, you're opening a Pandora's box of a question that really doesn't apply to you. Well, the as is, for, yeah, the as is for the buyer means I need a discounted group. Because there's something there's major something. flaw with the house. Uh, I mean, you went out and did a second opinion a few weeks ago with someone who had already listed with another agent, which was fine. But we went out, or, or Shannon went out and did, did the second opinion and gave her price opinion the way it sits right there. The previous person had given them a long list of things they had to do. And it, it, we try to avoid doing that unless we can clearly see that there's a value return to you financially that you've got to factor in how much time it's going to take? What are the costs to do it? How are you going to do it? You talk about someone who's dealing with a family with a mortgage with someone who's passed. Is there cash in the estate to do it? Have you started your probate or do you have access to a trust to pay for all of that? There's so many considerations involved in that that it, it, it can become very overwhelming very fast. Um, so while we're on that topic, let's talk about the as-is and who is attracted to as-is properties usually? Investors. And do investors pay fair market value for a house ever? No. Okay. Uh, I, well, um, I, I'm we, we had the last couple of years where investors were buying everything they could get their hands on, and they were, in my opinion, overpaying a lot of times. But that's the exception, and that's pretty well gone at this that's point. That's because the market was Okay, so the there's market. two different kinds of investors. Okay, so let me correct that. Investors that are landlords right now are paying fair, close to fair market value in most instances because it's so competitive. Flippers do not pay fair market value. And the, the, the investors that are landlords 
are paying it when it's on the public market at fair market value because they're having to compete for that product. Okay, so let's talk about the difference between what you just said. So the, the guy who sends postcards to everybody in the neighborhood or drops them off on your door that says, we'll pay cash for houses, we'll pay fair market value for houses in your, mark, in your neighborhood, call me, and if they do, and they make them a proposal that says this is fair market value, uh, what can they expect from that? Usually a significant discount from fair market value. Because yeah. they're going to look at the, I mean, I'll give you the, the formula that was taught by one of the franchises out there, excuse me, someone that we know who owns a franchise that's uh, one of those types of deals. And he goes in, he looks at what he can sell the house for, then he takes all the repairs that he's got to make to it or updates or remodeling off of it. So if it's uh, if it'll sell for 200, he's got 50 or six, let's say sixty thousand dollars. So now we're down to 140, and then they want to pay 35 percent of that 140. Well, I, yeah, I heard that. 35 percent. So so 35,000 plus 35 percent of well, we'll just call it another 10. So they're going to offer 45 to 50,000 for the house on something that we could probably sell as is where it sits for 110 or 120. So, and so you lose close to half of your equity doing that a lot of times. So Shannon, what happens when a house goes on the market like that? What does an investor have to do then? They have to compete with everybody else. Um, and so fair market value is a subjective term. It depends on who your fair market, who your fair market is. If your fair market is just you, well then it probably is a fair market value for you. That, for that investor. For that, for that investor. But if you're putting it on in the public and you now have the entire um, multiple listing service that is looking at it, that price is probably gonna be higher because you now are using our capital system and putting it out and seeing who all else is willing to pay higher than what they were and then it becomes a conversation and a, com a competition. It's like a bidding process. It is a bidding, yeah. And so investors right now are, they're desperate. I'll they're be honest with you, they're struggling because the, the market has been so crazy, right? And so investors are doing all kinds of things. Matter of fact, that's a side note. Uh, there's an investor out there right now in our market and in other markets too, but, and they're calling themselves senior transition specialists. And they're going to senior living communities and telling senior living community people that they can make that person's life easier that's moving to that assisted living by buying their house cash and they don't even have to move anything out of it. They just take what they want, leave it sit as it is, and they'll make their life much easier. They'll, they'll even do the move and move they'll, the person's stuff to the yeah, new community. Right. They'll do it all. And that's the formula that you're using, by the way, that Chris gave you. And the senior communities that don't know any different are saying, oh my gosh, call this guy. He's a lifesaver. Well, yeah, if you want to leave $100,000 on the table for your move, he's a lifesaver. Yeah, we had someone actually yeah. who was a regular attendee for SLTS do exactly that, unbeknownst to us. And we found out about six months later, we literally looked back at what she sold it for. And literally the day they closed, the investor went in, took iPhone pictures of the property with stuff still in it, strewn about it, and raised it $60,000 and sold it immediately. So that person who thought they were being taken care of and was referred to this person from the community was like, they lost $60,000 of their investment in their house because of just who they chose to play with.
And a lot of the reason is because people think that when they hear somebody say, this person's going to take care of you, they assume that that's true and they don't get a second opinion. Why do you think I tell everybody you're always getting a second opinion, right? And then if you still decide to go that route, that's your choice. But at least you're doing it with information and not... You're fully educated. You're fully educated. We, we, I have... You know, if you decide to do that on your own, then great. But, well, that's the yeah. example of the guy we talked about that we did the second opinion a few weeks right. ago. He still chose to go the other way because right. he was kind of committed there. But it's like... At least now he knows. Yeah. yeah. Now, now he's had a second opinion and is informed. And he knows he has an alternative if that does not work out. Right. Okay. So that's kind of that was kind of all my prepared questions. I figured you guys would probably have the best questions uh, because it's you that's doing this. So let's, let's field some questions and um, we'll get rolling. Barbara, you're first. I have a question going to the county assessor's website. How valid is the market value and the taxable? Oh, good question. Okay, so Barbara's question is, if you go to the county assessor's website and you look up your property, how accurate or valid is the value on there uh, and the, on the taxable amount? How, how accurate is that? Yeah. Well, it depends. It also depends on what county. I'm going to tell you, counties range, a huge range between the counties. Um, the further out you go, Logan County, McLean County, Garvin County, those guys, it's much lower They're behind. Okay. They're behind. Yeah. They may only see a house once every three or four years, and that's a drive-by. Um, Oklahoma County, Cleveland County, um, their answer is also, it depends. Right now, I can tell you that the house values on um, County assessor in some places, especially in Oklahoma County, are higher than what the houses will actually sell for on the market, depending on condition of the house. That's why when you look at the county assessor, there's three numbers you get. You get an average, which they'll tell you your house is potentially worth 200, or it's assessed for $250,000. But underneath that, there's a range this says 175 to 325. So they're kind of covering all of their bases. Um, Oklahoma County also gives you a, I don't know the name of it, I, I can see it in my head. It tells you like a ranking, it's up to 100% of their, their confidence level of that number. The lower that number, if it says 35% or 35, that means they're not even confident in their own number. But that's the last number they've given you. Anything over 75%, they're saying they're more confident in that. But again, also keep in mind they've never seen the inside of your house. They're only assessing your neighborhood and the external data they have about your house. Okay, so let's give an example. Where Chris's parents live, there's a lot of houses that have been remodeled and flipped and resold. And they so they're basing those values on the resale of those houses that have been completely decked out, right? And they're sold at the top of the market. And if they're basing a house that you've lived in for 40, 50 years but haven't totally decked out, then they're raising your value based on everybody else's, right? Well, and also on that same page, if you're actually looking at Oklahoma County tax records on that same page, uh, towards the top, just kind of under the address, there is a, literally, they give you a button that says sold in your subdivision. And you can click on that, and it'll give you a list of what recorded deeds have happened that have sold, meaning changed hands with money, not like moved to a trust or things like that. But actually, and they'll give you the sales prices on what they sold for. So you can actually go back and do a little bit of research on your own and look around. 
and, and see that. It's a lot harder than what we go through, but we do use that when we go into a neighborhood that has no comps because they sell so fast. Um, our, where we live in a condo complex, we, we would, there would be so many private sales that wouldn't be an MLS, so we would have to go back and use that occasionally. It's also a really good place when your neighbor sells their house and they tell you they got $300,000 for it, and you're thinking, that seems really high. Go back and look at the county assessor and that will tell you how much they sold. Sometimes people's memories are faulty. <laughs> it's amazing, amazing, amazing. That 300 turns into 260 pretty quick. Yeah, right. They felt it was 300. They, well, they rounded up. Yeah. Barbara, does that answer your question? All right. All right, who has another question? Yeah, How many realtors should you talk to and how do you determine which ones and how many? Okay. Uh, how many real estate agents should you talk to, or realtors should you talk to, and how do you determine how many to talk to, or how do you determine who to hire? Oh, uh, well, Dick, you can't do that. We're so biased. You know, we're going to say that's silly. Just well, call us. Just us. We're you know? <laughs> <laughs> but let's assume that, that we don't work in your market area. Okay, and then and so we'll give you an unbiased answer about that. If you're in if you're in another market, how should you go about it? I, absolutely, it's always good to get a second opinion. And it's always really good to know what they're saying and, and understand what their second opinion is. If someone gives you a number that's significantly higher than somebody else, go, are, are you asking me to do any work with the house to get that number? Or are you saying, as it sits, this is what it looks like? Those are the things you need to ask between to kind of differentiate. But I would bet you most realtors will bring in numbers that are very similar. Uh, you may have someone who's a little more aggressive or a little more up on the neighborhood to think that that neighborhood's going to bring more. Um, but don't pick your agent based on what they say the price is. Because you can always go to the other agent if you like them better and say, hey, this guy says it's this, and I, I agree because I think it's worth the $20,000 higher because of X, Y, and Z. That other agent will probably look at that and go, okay, well, let's say it's us. We're going to say, okay, we'll price it higher, but on one of our agreements we're going to say, in 14 days, if we don't have an offer or have a certain amount of activity, we're going to have an automatic price reduction. We'll work that in the strategy for marketing your home, because the last thing we need to do is price your home at what they said it's worth, when it's really not, and have it sit there for 90 days. Well, also, when you're interviewing, so I'm going to also tell you, you can interview 50 realtors. They will happily line up and all talk to you. Um, but when you ask about who you should talk to, I would ask, um, I would tell you that you would want to speak with realtors who are familiar with your neighborhood or your area. I would not, if you live in, I'll just say if you live in um, Woodward, Oklahoma, I would not be the best realtor for someone in Woodward, Oklahoma. Um, I should be able to have data and be able to speak to that area. Okay, so, so let's talk about why she's saying that. Because right now, guys, there is a big problem. Uh, you, we're licensed as real estate agents in the state of Oklahoma. We can sell a house anywhere in the state of Oklahoma legally. That does not mean we should, right? Because It doesn't mean we're competent, and that's right. mainly what our ethics look at. Yeah. Are you competent to sell in that area? Do you know the data and the statistics? Now, when she says neighborhood, I'm going to just be clear. Just because somebody hasn't sold houses in your neighborhood doesn't mean that they don't know your neighborhood. Because most of our neighborhoods can be researched very easily. It used to be, back when I started in 91, I, I would sell 10 houses in the same neighborhood because I only worked this little bit tiny geographic area, right? But now, with the internet, <laughs> the world wide web, 
um, you know, I could sell a house in anywhere canoe. In, in Canute, Oklahoma, right, Naomi, um, and 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 do it. But here's the thing: what you what your question is, Dick. I'm going to be really specific. Let's say you interview three. Three is a good number because you're going to get three different opinions, and two of those should probably be real similar. You may have an outlier, somebody who says it's worth way more or way less than the other two. You can just disregard that one. Take the other two and go, okay, of those two, what do I like about them? And I'm going to tell you, most people will pick a real estate agent based on what they tell them the price of their house is. And realtors will use that to get the listing. Now you've signed a three-month or six-month listing with somebody. They've priced your house at $250. It's only worth $200. And I guarantee you two weeks later, they're going to be asking you to reduce the price. But you've chosen them because they lied to you. That's frankly what it is. If the realtors are being honest with you, they're going to give you the true answer. And then you choose that person based on who communicates with you better and who negotiates better and who has a better experience level and all those things but do not choose the person based on the price that they give you I, and there's a lot more actually price is probably um, the most direct thing that I deal with as a realtor um, there is so much more that we do with um, how we communicate with you how we communicate with other vendors who are able to help you be able to take care of the different steps of what you need to take care of advertising and promotion open houses, there's so much more to my job description and what we do. Those are the things you should be asking. Price just gets your foot in the door. The rest of it should be the decision making for who you hire. Well, we get, we get one call a year at least of uh, someone who's sold their house and they need to move out in two or three weeks and move in. And they've got a place to move. It's usually not, that's usually not much of an issue, but they've got a house full of stuff. So their, their advisor who they've hired, their realtor, has given them no advice on how to actually make the transition. So if you don't have that resource in place beforehand, you're in trouble. And so, and, and I'm probably hated by at least a few agents because I tell them to bust the deal, start over, and let's do it right, versus doing it in this short period of time, which is not going to be, you're not going to be happy at the end, you're going to be stressed out for the entire process. So they have to avoid their contract with that buyer and start over and resell it, yeah. Correct. So, so you know, we, Chris and I have been coaching real estate agents now for, what, 10 years or so. We, we Around the country, we coach real estate agents. And one of the things that's always funny to me is brand new real estate agents are so eager, right? They're so eager. I was, I mean, the guy that hired me for the very first time was a brave soul. Right, and I so appreciate them. Um, but they're eager and they'll do anything to get a listing. So they'll go in and they'll basically tell the person whatever they want to hear in order to get that listing. It doesn't mean that they're going to do a good job as soon as they have a listing. And so I went into a gentleman's house, this was before the crazy market, and it was a second opinion. He had the house listed, and I went in and he said, Well, I hired this guy and he told me he could get this for my house. And I said, He did. He said, Yep. I said, Well, I'm looking at the numbers, and here's the data, and I, there is no possible way that I can get that much for your house. I don't care what we do to it. No possible way. So here's what you can get for your house. You need to call the agent and have him reduce the price. And he goes, well, I'm not going to do that. I said, well, then you really don't want to sell your house. He said, no, I do want to sell my house, but I want to sell it for that price. I said, okay, well, fair enough. So I called that young man, the, the, one, the one that listed it, and I said, I just want you to know I went out on a second opinion. This gentleman called me, I gave him a price opinion, and your price is pretty high. 
And he goes, yeah, I know. And I said, well, so why did you take the listing if you know it's not going to sell at that price? And he goes, well, because I have a sign in the yard and buyers call. And I get those buyers and I go sell them something else. Oh. oh. That's the strategy, you guys. So what I'm telling you is if you've got a house on the market, especially now, and it's not selling, it's because that buyer is farming buyer. I mean, that agent's farming buyers off of it, and your house is not going to sell. But that agent's not going to tell you that. Well, they may have said you need to reduce it, but they're they're not telling you what they're doing on the backside because you're not. Right. You know, I, I, I'm taking your listing. It's not going to sell at this price, but I'm going to pick up lots of buyers off of it. It's going to be fine for me. But I'm not going to advertise Your house it. is still not going to sell. Right. Well, and Chris said it earlier, if your house is not selling and your agent is working and, and promoting it and it, um, the condition is good and that the price is overpriced, you've bought your house again. So you're, you are the buyer at that point um, with not looking at the market value. So, and, and the question becomes is, is if you've moved out of the house and now you have a house sitting there, you, I say generally sellers go, it's not costing me anything. I don't have a mortgage. And I go, great. So let's talk about taxes. Let's talk about insurance. Let's talk about utilities. So let, tell me how much all of that is for you. And depending on the house, it could be as easy as you know six, seven hundred dollars, or it could be eleven or twelve hundred dollars a month. And I'm like going, so you're telling me that it's worth? I'll go pick the middle because it's easy. A thousand dollars a month for it to sit there and you buy your house, than it is to go ahead and reduce it to market value, let's say fifteen thousand dollars, and you sell your house and you're not spending a thousand dollars a month on a house that you actually have a risk with, because if you have a piece of property sitting there. There's a risk to it, meaning fire, tornado, anything like that, that will easily cost you way more than what you think you're going to get. Now, it's just a risk, so it's your, your risk to assume, and always keep that in mind that it's there. So sometimes, going back to the original part of our conversation, the emotional attachment of that house makes it worth the risk of not selling it yet. Does that make sense? You guys get that? And so what we try to do is we try to look at, you know, are you really ready to let this house go? And we work with people for years in the Downsizers Club, for instance, that are still really trying to decide, do I really want to sell this house? And until you really are ready to sell the house, you probably should not have it on the market. Does that make sense? Um, because at that point, you're wasting your time and somebody else's time, and uh, it can be very... Well, crazy. we can appreciate the buyers we pick up off you not selling the house, <laughs> but it's not doing you any service. Right, yeah. Well, and, and the market is such right now that the, the longer the house is on the market, and we are no longer at the five hours where a house is on the market for five to ten hours, and if it's 12 hours, well, there's something wrong. That's, we passed that, but when you are on the market, in neighborhoods that your average days on market is seven to 10 days and you're on the market 120, we're going back to buyers and saying, what's wrong with that house? Why is somebody not bought it? So you do want to sell your house. The market tells you not only the price, but also gives you a guide on what the days on the market should be. And you should be looking at that as well. Okay, good. That was a good question. Yes, Betty. Uh, I'm looking <coughs> at value or convenience. <coughs> And I want to look at value or compromise. Value or compromise? Mm -hmm. Okay. For example, <clears throat> let's say a family member wants to relocate me and want me to sell my house. Yeah. And I don't want to sell for 
not having an argument, I'll say I'll compromise. I'll rent my house, okay. move with you. <clears throat> if I enjoy staying there, then I can sell it. <laughs> if I don't enjoy staying there, I'm come back to my house. What do you think of that type what do we of action? Okay. I'm not interested in about the money. Okay. Because, okay, you know. so what are the pros and cons of that, are you saying? Yeah. Okay, so let me repeat what she said. So, so Betty's saying, what if I said to my kids or whomever that I, instead of selling my house and moving to be closer to you, I'll move closer to you, rent my house out here. If it works out, I'll stay. If it doesn't, and I'll sell my house. If it doesn't work out, I can always move back to my house that I had rented out, yeah? So what are some of the things Betty needs to be aware of or think about if that's going to be her strategy? Well, it's not a bad strategy, but there's some things that you do want to keep in mind. One, if you're renting your house out, you're still going to liquidate the contents of your house. Or you're going to have to deal with storage, and then that's an additional expense, and that may be a wash with the income you're getting from your rent house, or from renting the house. So that's one. So you still have to deal with the stuff because you're probably not going to move the entire household to your children. And if you do that, they may help you decide to move home pretty quick. Um, so that'd be one. Two, rent renting, um, especially if you're going to be out of state, if you're a landlord out of state, who's going to do the daily maintenance and care for the tenants, property management, when um, the sink breaks? or the refrigerator is not working, or the back door does not slide closed, or they found a bug in the house. Um, and these are all calls I've received in the last year from my dad's rent house, so I'll just tell you, you get lots of calls. So, so renting is, not, is an alternative, but you have to look at the risk value at the end of the year, or however long that takes, um, if, you, if your house is in as good a condition as you left it meaning if that renter was a good renter or if it was a renter who um, tore up your house. Well, and, and the other obstacle there, I say obstacle, the other thing to remember is insurance changes. When you take your house from an owner-occupied to an investment piece of property, your insurance coverage changes. The, the biggest coverage change is you basically go to fire. If it burns down, they're gonna replace it. A hailstorm hits it, they're gonna look at your roof, and this is generally speaking, this isn't necessarily every policy, but most policies are written this way, is that they're gonna look at your roof, your roof's 10 years old, it's a 30 year roof, it's gonna cost you know, 20,000 to replace it, they're only gonna give you 66% because 10% of it you've already used. And I'm sorry, 10 years of it you've already used, which is a third of the expectancy of the roof. So your roof cost just went up. And since this afternoon we're talking about hail, that's something to think about because that's an expense that can come up later when you do go to sell your house that now you've sold your house and you're out, out of pocket another four to eight, ten thousand dollars being the size of the roof because you rented it for a year versus just selling it. So you're saying that as a landlord, the insurance covers your roof at actual cash value rather than full replacement value? Okay, so those are just some things to think about. So property management, you would want to make sure whoever's taking care of the house for you, you're not having to do it from a distance, right? Um, and there are people out there that do that, obviously property managers who do that. Um, and we have people that we can recommend for that kind of thing. We don't, prop we don't manage properties. Um, and then the other thing that obviously is, how long is the lease going to be? How long are you willing to give this a try with your kids? 
for a year or six months or three months, right? So you want to make sure that your lease isn't, uh, let's say your lease is 12 months and three months into it, you decide you don't want to be there anymore. Um, you can't come back until 12 months. You just have nine months. months to go. You got nine months to go. So you would be making the commitment the same amount as the lease that you're renting your house for. Yeah. Does that answer your question, Betty? It's it's not a bad strategy. It's just a thing to keep in mind. Then you may look for a different type of rental, and it may be closer to an Airbnb, but again, you're still dealing with your stuff because you would not probably right. want to leave your stuff yeah. in an Airbnb. Curtis, you want to add to that? Something. And talk about default risk. The what? Default the risk? Default risk. So, yeah, if, you, if your renter decides to stop paying, uh, then you obviously have that to worry about us too, because it, then you've got to get an attorney to do a, what's called a forcible entry detainer to do the eviction, and it's, it's not any fun. So the, the hard part on renting is finding the right person to rent your house. We, we have one rental property, and when we put it up for rent, I think it's been four years ago now, she, I, I ran everything in the background check we did, and it's like, okay, this is the best person I think we can find to do it, and knock on wood, She's been awesome. But we also deal with a lot that aren't awesome. Oh, so. I've seen houses that have been yeah. totally trashed out so they, no, they, they have no appliances when the person left. <laughs> and by the way, I, you know, Curtis brought up the, the default risk. I'm going to bring up the emotional uh, risk of it. You worry about a house that's yours. Right, you worry about it, and I and I can't I can't I can't tell you whether that's worth the risk or not. But there are just some things that are just not worth the worry, right? The constant worry. The the house you're selling right now uh, for thirty thousand dollars in Geary, Oklahoma. Which, by the way, those of you who think that we only sell really expensive houses, um, right now we're selling a house for thirty thousand dollars in Geary, Oklahoma, and it's been the hardest sale that Shannon's done all year. Um, because it's she's the, already used examples from that sale to talk today. Right. Um, but but the, the reason I bring it up is, is that the owner, the heir of the property, the owner lives out of state, and it's a constant worry, right? It's a constant worry um, having that house. We actually are just taking care of the paperwork, so I didn't have to find a buyer. So we thought, oh, this will be simple. Okay, no. Um, so it's a matter of. of family relations, emotions, pretty much everything on our list today we have covered um, with this $30,000 house. But the person in Nevada still worries about the house even though she's not lived there in probably 20, yeah, 25 plus years and has a really good rent rent. Yeah. So. Well, and, and to go back to the emotional side of the renting, the, the, I'll go back to Dean. Uh, he, he talked about fixing it up and renting it. That he couldn't emotionally handle the fact that that's the house he grew up in and what if they didn't take great care of it? Uh, yes, Barbara. What happens if you have put your house into a trust, but then you now decide that you are willing to, to sell it? What happens if you put your house in a trust and then you decide you want to sell it? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a great question. Actually, it's pretty easy. Um, you're going to sell it just like normal. Whoever the trustee signs for the sale of the house, because they are responsible for the trust, and then the proceeds go into the trust, and the trust can then allocate it accordingly. The trust then becomes um, 
The first seller. is the seller. Yeah. So it, it's actually just as simple as as long as it's done correctly and the deed is done correctly, um, it's a very it's a very direct transaction. It's it's really important to file the deed from the individual to the trust. Incredibly important. It causes lots of problems when that step doesn't happen. And I can see Jennifer smiling from here. So just so you know, I, I'm going to do a quick plug for next month's seminar because next month we're doing the seminar on the truth about estates, trusts, wills, and uh, guardianships. So Jennifer will be up here talking about some of those issues. Mm -hmm. So questions that you might have related to your trust or doing a trust next month would be the perfect time for that. But we sell lots of houses out of trust. Oh, absolutely. Lots and lots. Now, the main issue is, like Chris said, if it's in the trust, it's been deeded to the trust, and is the trustee the person living in the house? So, you know, sometimes the trustee isn't the person living in the house. Yeah, and, and that can be done either way. Yeah. I mean, because if the original trustee passes away, the successor trustee takes over. So a, a correctly created trust... <laughs> Very it, it is literally an information. It's a directions for the seller on what to what what they're supposed to do because trusts give them direction. If it's set up right and you've had trustees pass, it's really easy as long as we've got successor trustees. It, it's selling it out of a trust is it's not as easy as an individual, but it's pretty doggone close. Well, let's, since she asked that question, I'm going to go ahead and ask you guys to answer the question: What about probate? So if a person uh, passes and now the house has to be probated, can you sell a house that's being probated and how does that work? And I know we're not talking from an attorney perspective here, just from our experience with dealing with those houses. Uh, what do you guys as real estate professionals need in order to be able to liquidate that house? So um, surprisingly, it's actually not terribly difficult. Um, and we can actually sell the house and, and, and close it within 45 days of the probate starting if the attorney does it well. Uh, and the main thing is we're, we're doing one right now that closes today. It closes today that probate was started less than 30 days ago or right about 30 days ago because the attorney thought ahead and said, you know what, when we, when we assign the uh, ex uh, personal representative, we're going to go ahead and do what's called the 239, which then makes the property eligible to be sold. And so they did all of that at once, which gave us the ability to actually sell and close the property pretty quickly, which I was surprised that it worked out that easily, but so far, so good. Another knock on wood. So here, so here lies the problem, again, going back to attorneys. You know, we have Jennifer in the room who we love, and she wouldn't be an education partner if we didn't know that she does things correctly. We have a couple of attorneys that refer business to us that, um, like Chris said, if it's going through probate and the family doesn't know who to ask, they refer it to us to sell. So we deal with different attorneys. We also deal with people who call us as family members and say, we want to sell our ha a house for my, my parents' house, and we need the money out of it because we need to be able to pay some bills. And they don't have an attorney who's doing a good job, and that is the nightmare. Or, no attorney at all. Or they have no attorney, or they have a family attorney that they always call. And, I mean, I had this happen to a girl that I actually went to high, uh, middle school with, or elementary school. She called me and says, I've got my mom passed away, and we need to sell the house. Um, literally, she called it the day after mom passed, which I thought was a little early, but okay, whatever. She was one calling my attorney, but we need to get the house listed. I'm like, oh, great, ask the attorney 
time frames from when she does the uh, initial request to be personal representative to getting the 239. And, and if they can't tell you what those time frames are specifically as far as waiting periods and publication periods, don't go there. Go find an attorney that does probates. And that's what she did. She picked up the phone. She called her attorney she uses all the time, supposedly, and said, I asked him those questions. And he said, he'd have to get back with me. And I said, I'll call you back. She <laughs> called me back, and I said, call somebody else. Because you need someone who does probate. If they have to Google the answer to the question on probate timelines, they're not the right attorney. Because it's going to make your probate go from what could be 90 days to six months to be a year. Just because they don't understand the process. And that and means that house is sitting there in limbo for a year. Especially if they don't understand the process. And that it's coming, the money to maintain that house is coming out of somebody's pocket or it's not being maintained. That means electricity gets shut off, gas gets shut off because nobody can afford those um, monthly expenses because all that money's tied up. Or your family siblings are paying for that okay. out of pocket. Uh, you had a question, I think. Hand up? No? I saw a hand up. Yeah, Leonard. I have a question that kind of, uh, in 2007, we got married. She had a house in Utah, and I had one here in Oklahoma City. We decided we couldn't go back and forth. Uh, so we found a house. Builder's model, talked to the realtor that was sitting there. Our place is horrible, and it didn't have enough fits on the roof. We need that fix and that fix. The builder said, No problem. I got a bill called my own fireplace. We'll get everything taken care of. I wrote a deposit for the house. Uh, the realtor said, Your house was good. I said, No, you weren't going to list it until we find one. So he said, Okay, since I'm selling you this house to the builder, I'll do your house for 3% of it. Right money. 
Well, and your listing isn't with the agent, it's with the broker. Well, and that was the next thing I was gonna get to. If the broker never knew about your listing, you never really had a valid listing. So at any point in time, you could have fired him and walked away and said, no, your broker doesn't even know about it, so it's not turned in. I don't have an agreement with the broker. And there's no good answer to what you're asking, frankly. It's it's a... Well, so here here's well, what the problem well, is. Well, so there's I a chain of command. There's a that. chain of yeah. command. So I would tell you that in hindsight, again, hindsight's 2020, right. but I would tell you I would sure be, um, I'd be loud sooner. So I would have reached out to the broker. If my realtor was, if I don't return your call in 24 hours, I need you to call Chris because I'm dead in a ditch. Um, so if someone's not returning your call in a reasonable amount of time, meaning 24 to 48 hours, giving them the benefit of the doubt, then you do need to call their broker. You need to call their boss. They're at the next level um, and involve them because that's a reasonable amount of time. We carry our phones, and probably most of them have, most of us have it next to our bed. So if that phone cannot be returned in a reasonable amount of time, then it needs to go to the next level because something's wrong. So let's escalate it sooner right. to get someone involved and have that broker help you fix it. So let's that. say they call the broker. Okay. And in his case, if you call the broker and the broker said, I don't know who you are and I don't have any listing paperwork for you, then you basically are off the hook. You go find a different realtor. I'd ask that broker right. to put that in writing, the email, and then you'd go find somebody else to do it. But let's say they did have it. Let's say they had paperwork, but this, this agent is MIA. They took a full-time job, and they're working at Tinker, and now they don't have time to call you back. What's their recourse with the brokerage? Well, the broker, and I guess it's all answers as the broker for us, is that it's my responsibility now to deal with you as a client because you're my client. You may be working with Shannon, but in the end, as the broker, you're my client, so I need to work with you. And I need to do whatever's, whatever makes sense for you and the brokerage to do that. Most likely what I would do is I'd assign you to a different agent if it was a larger brokerage. In our situation, if we're not getting along and you're already upset, I'm gonna say, hey, how can I help you find your next agent? Well, because we're not playing nice together here, and I'll find you a great agent to take care of because apparently we've failed you. But that's a, that's a philosophy, that's a business philosophy. Absolutely. So let's say we, we were with Keller Williams for 20 some odd years, big brokerage, lots of agents, 300 some odd agents in one office. If the agent is not doing a good job, you call the broker, the broker's probably gonna say, and this is what I would have said when I was the broker, let me introduce you to another couple of agents. You can interview them and decide who you wanna work with and who would work best for you. If you said to me, lady, you've lost your mind, I don't want to work with your company at all, then I have a choice to make as the broker. I can either make you keep that listing unless you could prove somehow that I wasn't carrying through with my obligation, or I could release the listing. And some brokers will release it, and some brokers will require you to stay in the listing agreement through that contract date, assuming you have a listed agreement. But to Shannon's point, uh, if you're having problems with somebody early on, Deal with that right then. Do not wait a week. Don't wait a month. Go ahead and, and get that person moved on. Yeah. I mean, it's really the best thing is just to pick up the phone or get them face to face and say, okay, this is what's going on. And if you can't get them face to face, go to the broker. And to the point of the reason that agent did not lose their license is that they cannot lose their license due to pure incompetence. They have to have an ethics violation against them. Yeah, legal or ethical violation. Incompetence will not cause someone to lose their you're, license. It's, it's very, you're, they're not going to lose a license unless they do something that's illegal. Everything else, they're going to be fine 
of monetary damage. Illegal, they'll have the license. Bad business practice or doing things that are against the Not rules. Not returning phone calls. That's a fine at best. The broker gets, the agent gets fined. The broker gets a fine. The broker gets a standard fine of failure to supervise. And then anything else they may have done. But that's the. That's it. If something happens to the agent, the broker gets that automatically. And that's just the way it works. Good question, though, Leonard. Yeah. Her? What, uh, what's the normal time that you would recommend for a listing? Oh, good question. So if you were signing a listing agreement, what would be the, the normal time, or what time frame should you sign an agreement for? Okay, so traditionally, we will sign a listing agreement for six months. But that's because of our specialty, because I may sign a lot. I will sign a listing agreement with a seller, and we may not be able to put it on the market for 30 to 60 days because we are helping them to downsize, pack, and move, and sometimes longer. Same with estates. So if we're dealing with an estate or dealing with a house, it may be longer. Um, I have signed listing agreements that were 30 days. I have signed listing agreements that are a year. That is negotiable when you sign a listing agreement. So that is something that is up to you. Now, um, again, it depends on the circumstance of that household. Well, if you're ready tomorrow and I can't sell your house in 90 days, you probably should fire me. But if we're not getting it on the market for 90 days, then a 90-day listing agreement's not fair to me as a business person because I'm not able to put your house on the market for It just period. means that in 90 days you gotta redo all that paperwork. Correct. Does that make sense? So you're better off listing it. If you're listing it early and not putting it on the market, it'll be a If you're doing no prep and you're just a traditional, then three months right now would probably be a sufficient time frame. But if you're looking at making a transition where you're going to move and you're going to prep and then you're going to move finally and do all that and then put the house on the market, because of our services and everything we offer up front, we go ahead and sign a listing agreement early, provide the services, do all of that, then your house will go on the market. So it, we do, we'll go a year. Right. If, we, yeah. if, you've, if you've told us you're not moving until October, but we've got all these prep steps we need to do between now and October, we're going to do a year listing agreement. Now, conversely, let me say this. One, let's say you don't know the agent. Let's say you have a house to sell in Canute, Oklahoma, and you decide to put it on the market with an agent you've never met before. Do a one-month listing agreement and tell that agent if they do a good job, you'll renew it in a month and you'll extend it for another month or six months. And if they don't do a good job, then in a month, you're off the hook. The only thing I'd push back on that time frame-wise, look at average days of market. If average days of market is 30, go, okay, I'll give you a 45-day. And 45 days from the day we go active. So we may have to do some adjustments on that a little bit. But give them the opportunity to sell your house in the normal time frame. Once you've exceeded the normal time frame, absolutely, you need to be looking at how to get out. Or, in our case, we do an easy exit agreement. Therefore, if you want out at any point in time, you just need to tell us, or tell me, we'll let you out, because we want happy people. Yeah. Okay, that was, those are great questions. All right, so I, we're out of time. So if you have a question that did not get answered, um, write it on your evaluation sheet, and one of these guys will call you, or they're going to be back at the table there in the middle, and you can go ask them uh, afterward. If it is a real estate-specific question, please ask one of these guys. They prefer I not answer those anymore. I don't really understand, uh, I <laughs> and I prefer it that way, too. So can we give them a hand, guys? Um, and as we're going back to their
chairs, let me make a couple of quick housekeeping announcements about upcoming seminars. I know, Vanessa, you had said you came today the first time. We're so glad you're here. We're doing a series of talks on different aspects of downsizing. So, like, today was kind of a real estate conversation. Um, Spanish Cove, every couple of months, has a seminar that we do on the downsizing process over at Spanish Cove. There are other topics coming up that are more specific to how to deal with your stuff. So be sure to look at the schedule, and depending on where you're at in the process, some of these topics will be more applicable to you than others. But let's talk about what's coming up um, next month. Let me get to this one first. So, uh, actually not next month. Two weeks from now, on May 23rd, we have uh, the one that we're doing, that we were supposed to do in January, but because of the uh, bad weather, we moved it to this month. And it is smart and not so smart accessibility ideas for your home. We're gonna have, uh, Shannon will be talking about some of the things that people put in their home that are not so smart, or that sometimes they, uh, don't help them with their home value. But we're also gonna have a handyman. We also have uh, one of our representatives from New View will be there to talk about things as well as Able Tech. So some really good information that we've really not shared before. And then, as I mentioned, Jennifer will be back uh, next month to talk about estate planning along with Arvest Trust Department will be here to talk about trust management. And that'll be a really great group as well. Um, I want to tell you about something coming up that is going to be beneficial to our folks at the Oklahoma Alzheimer's Association. The Oklahoma Senior Follies is coming up in June. If you have not been to this, they have a bunch of stuff back here at the table with uh, Herb and the Alzheimer's Association about the Oklahoma Fly. Has anybody been to this before? Yeah, was it really good? Yeah, amazing. I think it's going to be great. Um, these guys uh, are going to be there for two days, matinee shows. You can buy tickets online or you can talk to those guys back there about it. And then uh, we also have a couple of things coming up. Danielle did a discovery tour this week at Spanish Cove. She took some folks out and met with Jill and her team and they looked at the Spanish Cove campus. The next one coming up is, I believe, at uh, Lionwood on the 27th of June and then at Concordia. Let me tell you what those are real quick. This is not about if you want to move to that community. This is about you learning how to interview a community and what to look for. So even if you think to yourself, well, that's really not what I'm planning to do, you owe it to yourself to go on the tour because we give you questions to ask. The community people there are so amazing. They will tell you everything you want to know and more. And then when you decide to go to our other communities, if you do, you know what questions to ask there and you can compare and contrast. It's an educational event, not a sales event. Does that make sense? Okay, so feel free to get signed up for those. Um, we do limit the size just because we don't want 25 or 30 people uh, traipsing through a community all at one time. So make sure you get signed up for that. That's on your evaluation form. If you want to check the box that you want to go on one of those, you can just check the box uh, to go on those. And Danielle will call you about the details. All right, did anybody learn anything today? Yes or no? Yeah? All right, good. 